and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. If there's anything consistent about 2020, it is how inconsistent it is. We're not doing the things the way we always have, whether it's doing curbside pickup, outside-only masked visits with friends, or book clubs via Zoom. The same can be said of the performing arts. To stay relevant, they're doing things differently, including shows that they've done more or less the same for over 40 years. Actors Theatre of Louisville's run of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens has become a beloved holiday tradition to so many families in the region over the years, including mine. This year, theater lovers will experience the journey of Ebenezer Scrooge and the Three Ghosts in an imaginative radio play. While the in-person Christmas Carol performance has long been a feast for the eyes, the radio program will be a feast for the ears. Our guest this week, Amy Wegener, will give us the scoop on how we can interact with the Christmas Carol in a whole new, exciting way. She is a literary director and a dramaturg at Actors Theatre. Amy tells us why rereading Dickens' A Christmas Carol helped her find the humor in Dickens' writing that she had forgotten, why she finds constraints to be a spark for her creativity, and why theater is a unique art form based on its ability to transform depending on who interacts with it. Well, the holidays are upon us, and so Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Our guest this week is Amy Wegener, who is Literary Director at Actors Theatre of Louisville. We're so glad she's here with us. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to somebody who is in live theater, because one of the things that I have really missed during the pandemic is theater. And so tell us a little bit about you and how you came to be a part of Actors Theater. Sure. Well, this is my 20th season working there, and I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska. I'm a Midwesterner. I'm the daughter of English teachers who imparted their love of reading and went on to study English and theater in school. When I was in college, I took uh, modern and contemporary drama classes and started reading plays and dabbling in theater and just really fell in love with this form of literature and this collaborative art. So just after I finished grad school doing a master's in theater, I was in Chicago waiting tables, doing some freelance writing, trying to figure out what was next, looking for work with a theater. And a friend who I'll always be grateful to sent me a job description hosted by Actors Theatre of Louisville. And it sounded like everything I wanted to learn to do, uh, reading and evaluating plays, supporting productions of classics, and also working with playwrights in the development of new work. And I thought, that sounds like a great place to work for a few years and learn some stuff. And now it's where I've spent a couple decades. And I, I really love the work that I do. I don't think I realized at first how lucky I was to land here. I really couldn't have dreamed of a better place to get experience working on both classics and previously produced contemporary plays and new work, which I love, um, and working in a literary office 
And the person who hired me, Michael Dixon, was an amazing dramaturg, teacher, mentor. And I've had a whole bunch of really inspiring artistic bosses and wonderful colleagues and artist collaborators over the years that I've just learned so much from. Actors Theater is known for their training program. Were you part of the training program or you were just hired on directly? That's a great question. I was actually hired as the assistant literary manager. So okay. that was my first job. But with that said, like I felt all the hands-on experience I was getting at that point in my career, it felt very much like a wonderful training ground for me because the thing about what I do is that you have to sort of do it to learn it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so in those early years, I felt like I was really learning a lot alongside the apprentices. My colleagues in the professional training company became you know, dear friends and comrades and artistic collaborators. You mentioned that your parents were English teachers. So what types of books or literature were you attracted to growing up and did finding an interest in plays, did did that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, I would say growing up, I read more novels. I, you know, I was read to a lot <laughs> as a child. And that the discovery of theater really came for me in college when I really started reading a lot of plays, especially more contemporary work. And yeah, I had at that point, I, I think aside from reading some of the Shakespeare that you read in high school, I hadn't read a lot of plays. I remember taking a course that the professor who was a dramaturg described this experience of being in rehearsal with the writer of a famous play that we were reading and talking about being in rehearsal and a discovery that was made in the room that sort of changed the take on a particular scene. And it hadn't really occurred to me before that like a piece of literature could shift radically in response to like a group of artists working on it. And I was so entranced by that idea. And I think that that was kind of a pivotal moment for me. I'd always loved all kinds of literature and took a lot of different courses in a lot of different um, areas. But that was something that just ignited an interest for me in seeing if I could try to be part of doing that was really exciting. I've never really thought of it that way, but that is sort of like a light bulb moment. I mean, I guess Mm -hmm. instinctively, you know, that theater changes depending on who's directing it or who's acting it. But Mm -hmm. yeah, wow. I'm I'm having a light bulb moment myself just listening to you (laughs) talk about it. (laughs) So, So you mentioned that you are the literary director at Actors Theater. Describe to us what that is. What do you do? So there's sort of a wide variety of both administrative and creative work involved. But in a nutshell, there are three main things. First is reading and evaluating plays and really getting to know writers' voices and advocating for plays and playwrights during planning for upcoming seasons and the Humana Festival of New American Plays. I imagine it's probably a bit like being an acquisitions editor in publishing. You're responding to submissions, encouraging writers to keep in touch, a fair amount of outreach to invite both agents and writers to send work our way. So that's part of it. And then I also work as a dramaturg. What I do really depends on the project, but often you're a a sounding board for a writer who's developing their play. Often you're a resource for the director, someone who's deeply invested in the project and can be another pair of eyes as it comes together. Sometimes you're a resource for the cast, providing like research or context about the world of the play. For a classic play, it might involve cutting and arranging text. For example, right now, I'm working on Romeo and Juliet, Louisville 2020, and I've prepared 
a script based on talking with our director, Robert Barry Fleming, about his ideas. So that's a show that's coming up later in our season. Um, so working on that Shakespeare text. There's a, a wide variety of things that you can do as a dramaturg to support a production and the vision of the director and playwright and team. And then the third part is that there's a lot of writing and editing. So I write articles about the plays sometimes, just helping open up the world of the play for the audience. I do a lot of copywriting, working closely with marketing and communications. So there's an external relations component and helping to shape communication between the theater and the audience as well. So you mentioned as literary director, reaching out to playwrights and trying to find work. So I don't know. I had never really thought of it, but I guess there's not, or maybe there is, is there like a hub where you can kind of get in touch with up and coming playwrights or database or like a place that you would go to look to find new plays. But is, is that just a dream I had or my imaginings? Yeah, no, there is actually something called the new play exchange, which is a website that has just a ton of playwright pages, all the work that they've written, the, Folks who have read the plays can comment on them. Sometimes there are scripts posted, sometimes there are samples. Yeah, so there's that. And then there's also just a lot of research that we do on other play festivals, asking colleagues for recommendations, looking to organizations that develop new work but aren't necessarily producing organizations that host submission opportunities for writers and things like that. So it's really trying to stay on top of, you know, who's out there and who should be on our radar and making sure that we invite folks to send work and are being responsive to to what we're receiving. So obviously COVID has messed up a lot of things in 2020, but the performing arts industry has just really been slammed in ways that most of us probably don't realize. So how has Actors Theater had to adjust? Of course, our whole industry, which is based on live performance and gathering together, is facing some very big challenges and a lot of uncertainty. I feel really fortunate to be working where I do and with the colleagues that I have who've been incredibly nimble and adaptable and collaborative as we've navigated the last nine months since in-person performances uh, had to halt everywhere. So we switched gears pretty quickly last spring and immediately began to imagine and create work for a virtual season. It was clear to us that live in-person events weren't going to happen anytime soon. So our executive artistic director, Robert Barry Fleming, has led the Actors Theater team to really dive in and create a wide array of storytelling experiences and conversations for our digital platforms. And so by, I would say, late spring, early summer, we had more than 20 different projects in development, like working in both old media and new media, everything from radio plays like A Christmas Carol and our recent production of Dracula to animated pieces, to projects shot, edited, and released on video, to live streamed spoken word performances, to projects that have storytelling through music, to a series from musicians throughout Kentucky, to an interactive game. And we've also been regularly producing programming responding directly to what's happening in Louisville. So there's a podcast series and a regular conversation series that happens on Facebook Live. So Our focus has been on continuing to be of service to our community by exploring the intersection of art and emerging technologies and how art making can not only inspire and connect people in this moment, but also connect with social justice, civic participation, to just keep finding creative ways of fulfilling our mission to 
unlock human potential, build community, and, and enrich lives. Has that been a frustrating experience or has it been and, invigorating? Invigorating. I have found it really invigorating, actually. You know, it takes an enormous amount of energy to pivot and adapt, but I find that we are also learning so much and there's so much teamwork, which brings me a lot of energy and finding ways to work collaboratively across different areas in ways that we haven't before. And so I think this interdisciplinary, agile, problem-solving nature of it all has been invigorating. Yeah, because some of those things that you mentioned that Actors Theater is doing were probably things that no one would have thought to have done before or wouldn't have because what you were doing was working so well. I mean, as far as just your live performances, you know, were so successful that why delve into some of these other areas? So it seems like there's exciting things going on that have had to happen because of this thing that's sad and stressful and depressing, but, you know, some good things have come from it. I want to talk a little bit about the Christmas Carol. So that is something that's a tradition for our family to go see the Actors Theater production of the Christmas Carol. And with the holidays approaching, Actors Theater has had to reimagine a Christmas Carol. So tell us how you all are going to do this holiday classic this year. I'm so glad to hear it's a tradition for your family. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, we know this is a meaningful tradition for so many in our community that spans really generations, been producing the play for more than four decades. So we decided this year to create a brand new adaptation, which reimagines the story as an immersive listening experience, a radio play. So Actors Theater engaged an award-winning radio producer named Dan Gediman, who's based here in Louisville as the executive producer to guide the project, as well as a celebrated audio drama sound designer named Sue Zizza. We had these really experienced radio professionals collaborating with our artistic and production team to make this happen. And a fantastic cast that's a mix of um, beloved local actors who live in Louisville and performers uh, based around the country. Most of them play several roles, so it's really fun to hear their voice acting work as they transform into different characters. And they rehearsed and recorded the play remotely from home. And then the play is all beautifully edited together by our sound engineer, Paul Doyle. And it has a fully realized, fully designed soundscape. So sound effects and all of that. And look, there's so much fun you can have with sound in this story because of all of the ghostly goings on. Opportunities to capture the more fantastical moments that Ebenezer Scrooge experiences as he travels through past, present, and future. So it was really, really fun to reimagine, reconceive it for audio. So all the actors are in different places. Are they in studios? Are they like recording it from their homes? And then you edit it together, sort of like what we're doing here, where we're all recording in different places, but then it's going to end up as one piece. I'm sure your your audio is going to be much better, but is that basically how how you're doing it? Yeah, much like this, you know, finding a, a quiet room with something like a closet or with carpet and being able to record on several different devices and then taking those tracks and editing them together. So there was a lot of work at the beginning on, you know, making sure everybody had the right microphones and knew how to position their mics and how to set up their at-home recording booths, make all that happen. 
Well, I'm over here having a bit of an NPR fangirl thing because Dan Gediman, like I was sitting there going, I've heard that name. And then I realized like, oh, this American life, this I believe. I guess if you're a radio nerd, then (laughs) then his name rings some bells. So that's very cool. So you mentioned some of those sound elements. So what are some of those, you know, I I guess I, I think about Prairie Home Companion, you know, sometimes you'd hear some of the funny sounds that they'd come up with as part of you know, that performance. So are, th- are there any things in terms of the soundscape for Christmas Carol that sticks out to you as being particularly unusual or fun? Yeah, I mean, when your storytelling vocabulary is all based in sound and what can be evoked through telling rather than showing, part of what was really exciting to me was focusing on how the audio experience opened up a whole world of possibilities, really being able to use Dickens' wonderful descriptive language to spark the the listener's imagination. And it's a ghost story after all. It's really structured as a series of hauntings. So there's just a lot of fun to be had with things like hearing Marley come up from the cellar, approaching closer and closer to Scrooge's door. (laughs) And what it sounds like when Christmas Pass pulls him into scenes from his memory or even just things like clocks that chime leading up to the arrival of the ghosts are super fun to play with. So as I was reading Dickens with audio adaptation in mind, I really imagined and took note of all the things that you would hear and also those vivid descriptive passages, like things that we need to see in our mind's eye. So it was really fun writing that with that in mind. It didn't feel like a limitation, but something that unlocked a lot of creative ideas for me. I imagine thinking about having seen performances of A Christmas Carol and thinking about the creak of a door, which mm-hmm. is, is something very simple, but in that story, that could be very suspenseful when you're listening to it. So that's very cool. So you said that you adapted the play for this production. Can you explain to our listeners what it means to adapt a play? Sure. So when you write an adaptation for the stage or something like an audio drama, you're taking original source material, so in this case, Charles Dickens' novella, to write a script that can be performed, working from a sense of what most compels you or sparks your own imagination. So you're transforming the narrative into drama, sort of translating it from one form of storytelling to another, and making a lot of choices about what to foreground, how you will tell the story. So in this case, I sat with Dickens' words and tried to weave his delightful, warm, funny narrative voice together with scenes between the characters in a way that would bring it to dramatic life. And fortunately, Dickens himself writes pretty fantastic dialogue. There's a lot of conversations that he relates. So a lot of it is arranging his voice, and some of it is converting descriptive passages into action and dialogue. So There's a little bit of my own writing in there, but I really tried to do justice to his voice. And I I find Dickens pretty funny alongside his keen social conscience. And so there are are just moments when he makes just funny little observations I couldn't resist including. So it was fun to be able to do that um, in in the audio play. When you're doing the adaptation, writing the adaptation, are you working with other people like the director or other people? people in the crew when you're doing it? Or do you have free reign to do what compels you? Yeah, I did have free reign to adapt as I thought best. But with that said, Dan Gediman, our executive producer who really guided the whole process, gave me great notes on the script. 
And so did my colleagues, Jenny Page White and Hannah Ray Montgomery, who are both dramaturgs. They were writing their adaptation of Dracula, the radio play we released earlier this fall at the same time that I was writing Carol. So we would trade drafts and give each other thoughts. And Robert Barry Fleming, who directed the play, was incredibly supportive of my work. So I was surrounded by these really smart dramaturgical minds, but I did have control over the script and was given the encouragement to feel like I could make the choices that I thought were compelling. The work that the sound design and sound engineering, that whole component of it was the next layer. And there are so many things that they came up with that, you know, some of them are things that I had written into the script and other things were I had never imagined. So it was really, really fun to go back and listen to the drafts once the sound design was implemented. And just to see that added so, so much to the storytelling. So when they're doing those added audio flourishes, I guess, like the creaking door or the chains or something like that, are they using real items to make those sounds or is it like a computerized sound? Do you know? They're working from a trove of sound effects that they've assembled. And I am probably not the best person to answer a question about where all of that comes from. But yeah, they assembled an amazing assortment of sound to work from. Sound designers have tricks and resources that I can't begin to describe. (laughs) So when you were adapting this, just because it has been done for so many years and I feel like people tend to, if they love something, they want it done the same way over and over and over again. So, of course, with COVID, you don't have the option of doing it the exact same way. Did that feel intimidating or did you feel like, oh, you know, because of COVID, I get to change things up because people are going to have to have different expectations? Yeah, I mean, to me personally, it didn't feel like a limitation. I think great creativity can come from having like specific parameters. And so it felt actually liberating to say like, here's what we're going to do. And this is like a totally different adaptation. And we're not going to try to recreate exactly what you would have seen on stage because that wouldn't work anyway, because what you see on stage is so based in spectacle. And so we're going to really lean into the delight of making this a listening experience and taking you into your imagination, spending time with that wise, warm, funny voice, and getting to know these characters in a different way. So Amy, you mentioned that the Dracula performance was also a radio play. So did that benefit you? I know you said you were working on them together, but like, you know how if you're the first one to do something, it's almost like you're the guinea pig. So did you feel like because you get the benefit of, okay, we've sort of had a little bit experience of this under our belt. Did you feel like that applied to you worth working on a Christmas Carol? Yeah, I think so. Um, Dracula was a little bit ahead of the production schedule for Carol. So I think that there was a lot of learning with that process that the second time around, particularly I think on the technical side, but yeah, the actual writing process was pretty concurrent, but it was a great break to go and read the other adaptation and, and then come back to mine mm-hmm. <laughs> and just spend a little time in another world and then come back. It was really fun. But yeah, I would probably, in terms of the recording process, there was, there was some learning that then could be applied to Carol because Dracula was a little bit ahead of the schedule. I know for myself with teaching high schoolers and middle schoolers, but I, you know, I teach the same books repeatedly. And sometimes I'm amazed how much I can get from the same book, having read it repeatedly. I think people think, oh, well, you've read it. 
you've read it. So The Christmas Carol, had you read it before or was this something that you were going into it with fresh eyes? And I know that when you're adapting, you're reading it differently than you would if you were reading for pleasure. But talk to us about that in terms of your mindset. Did you get things from reading this that maybe you hadn't in the past? Yeah, that's a really great question because I I did. I had read the novella before, but not for some years. So when I sat down with it again, it felt like when you return to a piece of writing you haven't read in a while, you always invariably see different things. And I had seen a number of different stage productions, but I tried to mostly put that out of my head. (laughs) I didn't reference other stage adaptations at all. I just sat with the novella and... I was just so struck by, Dickens says this right in his preface, that he hopes the tale will haunt us pleasantly. But I was like, oh yeah, this is a ghost story. This is a series of visits from ghosts, which is really exciting for audio. There are just so many little moments where Dickens is taking such delight in a particular ridiculous description that, again, I I just was really struck by his sense of humor. There were passages that made me laugh out loud. Just odd little ways of phrasing things, like the moment when Scrooge sees Jacob Marley's face on the door knocker. It's the very first glimmer of a ghostly happening. And Dickens describes, I don't even know what this means, but he says it's like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. <laughs> and I mean, just things like that, that I was like, I find that hilarious. And I don't know that I've actually like heard that in a stage production because you see it <laughs> when you see it on stage. So just felt like there were opportunities to capture that voice and that sense of humor. And then also just being reminded of how much... Dickens is trying to be a voice for the poor and thinking about income equality and the few who have and the rest who have not. And the call to be generous, the call to see your fellow humans as fellow passengers to the grave. You know, all all of that this is a very long-winded way of getting to the point, which is that I think I was really struck by how all of those things, the suspenseful ghost story the delightful sense of humor and the incredible social conscience all are balanced and exist in this single sort of delightful tale. (laughs) And the social justice piece is still so timely. Yes. yes. Yeah. Just rereading the novella, especially in a time when so many people are losing their jobs and there are lines for food and it sort of couldn't be more resonant. I don't think I've ever actually read the novella and this makes me want to go read it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the original material. I mean, I've seen the the movies, the theater productions so many times, but I don't think I've ever actually read the original. Have you, Carrie, read the original? No, I have not. But now that Amy mentioned that simile, I'm like, okay, I got to go check this out. Lobsters <laughs> and sellers. <laughs> <laughs> so how do patrons access the Christmas Carol? Is it something where you buy like a Zoom ticket per se at the box office on your website or, or how do people access it? Yeah, you just go to the website and you can buy a ticket there. And then when the show is available, it starts streaming on November 24th and it runs through the end of December. Once you purchase and the show is released for streaming, you will receive a link. And then all you have to do is click on the link and play the show. Oh, let's say you buy your ticket on December 1st. Do you have to listen to it on December 1st or can you listen to it anytime through the end of the production? 
I believe for this one, you can listen to it anytime before the end of the production. I have to ask, I think we're all hoping that 2021 is certainly very different from 2020, but you mentioned the Humana Festival and those contemporary plays. So is it difficult? Because I know from having attended Humana Festival plays in person in the past, just the breadth and the scope of what those plays are about, is that difficult to winnow it down and decide on which plays Actors Theater is going to focus on? It is difficult. It's challenging in a wonderful way because there are so many amazing writers and plays out there. And settling on that mix of pieces to produce and curating the group can be a puzzle. And there's such a long and arduous process that we go through to reach that point. You know, our our literary staff invites and fields and reads a ton of play submissions. And then we elevate the plays that we think are promising, the voices that grab us and intrigue us to the rest of the artistic staff and really try to put forward plays in as many different styles from as many different perspectives in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, culture, geography, age. Like the goal is to have as rich and diverse a group of possibilities as we can. And then we meet regularly to discuss what we're reading and the plays that really capture our hearts and stay in the conversation become the work from which we curate the festival. We talk a great deal about what will resonate or reflect experiences in our local communities in and around Louisville and as part of the country as well. So lots of different dimensions to look at and lots of plays to read and lots of discussions. Tell us what exactly the Humana Festival is. There are probably some listeners out there who do not know. Sure. So the Humana Festival of New American Plays is an annual celebration of new work at Actors Theatre of Louisville. It's been around for 45 years, and we produce a slate of world premiere plays, a mix of really exciting voices launching that work into the world for the first time. And it's a really cool opportunity for Louisvillians, people in our region, and people really around the country to see groundbreaking new work. They are fully produced. Playwrights come do part of the the rehearsal process, fully designed. And this year, obviously, it will be a little different. I can't talk about that yet, but <laughs> uh, but that's what the event is. It's it's a it's a really exciting gathering to see a bunch of new work, and it's a very diverse slate of of voices. And these are plays from playwrights from across the country. They're not just local, correct? Yes, they are from all over. The yeah, mm-hmm. we can't wait for Actors Theater to get back and producing so we can see some of these great new plays. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Amy Wegener and with Carrie. And Carrie, I think that you're going to talk about a book that you stopped reading for a little while and you picked it back up again. And so I want to hear all about it and why the wishy-washiness from you, Carrie. (laughs) Well, I generally don't mind a heavy book. (laughs) If you look on my bookshelf, you know, I don't have light, sentimental, heartwarming books on my bookshelf. I generally tend to like kind of meteor, not meteor, like the kinds that go through the sky, but (laughs) M-E-A-T-I-E-R, meteor books. So I had started reading Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rebay. 
I had heard about him. Actually, one of our former guests, Natalie McCall, had interviewed him on her podcast and I had listened to it and I, I thought he sounded really interesting and I thought the book sounded interesting. So I started reading, but it's kind of heavy. It's about a teenage boy who his father was born in the Philippines and his mother is an American. His family moves to the United States and he basically grows up as an American. So he wasn't really taught the traditional Filipino customs, right? He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't really know the history of the Philippines. And so at the beginning of the book, he learns that his cousin, who was about his age, who still lived in the Philippines, has been killed. And the young man is very confused by this. His name is Jay. So he wants to find out what happened. He and his cousin had fallen out of touch, which is, you know, sort of typical for teenagers. And especially because they live thousands of miles away from each other. So what he does is he travels to the Philippines to kind of discover what happened to his cousin. Why was his cousin killed? What's the story? He at first stays for several days with the family of origin of his cousin. So his uncle and and his aunt and the sisters of his cousin. And they have a very unusual relationship. The father won't let them talk about the son. You're reading it and you're not sure, like, is this how a typical Filipino family would act? Or is is there some dysfunction going on here? Jay is asking questions about like what happened and and he's kind of snooping around a little bit. And so his uncle essentially tosses him out. And so now I'm at the part, I'm about 65% of the way done. And Jay is now staying with his aunt, who's a lesbian, and her partner. And he's met a girl and he's trying, with her help, she's a journalism student. And so now he is going through the slums of the Philippines to find out basically the story of what happened to his cousin. So I think this brings up a lot of things that young adults would find interesting and even older adults would find interesting. I think the idea of what our identity is and what family relationships and family dynamics can be and the positives and the negatives of that. And what do you do? His dad is from the Philippines, but his dad moved to the United States and hasn't maintained any of those traditions and hasn't passed down any of those traditions. And so Jay feels bad that he doesn't have those traditions, but that sort of wasn't his job. I mean, as the child, you would think that's the parent's job to pass down those traditions. So I think it gives you a lot to think about, but it's kind of heavy because it's talking about President Duterte in the Philippines and the war on drugs Mm. that they've had in the country, which has resulted in a lot of people more or less being killed. That brings up the idea of you know, everybody wants to have a society where people make the right choices and, you know, everybody's happy and healthy and all that stuff. Well, you know, not everybody's going to make that choice. And some people are because of genetic predispositions, they're going to become addicted to drugs. And so does that mean those people shouldn't live? Like I said, it kind of gets heavy. So that's why I had to temporarily take a break from it. Almost done. Are you enjoying it? Are you appreciate it? How would you dis- describe it? Yeah, I think appreciating it. And I'm interested. Like, I'm interested to hear what happened with the cousin. Because Jay was thinking that his uncle 
threw his cousin out because he was addicted to drugs. And Jay thinks his uncle had something to do with the son's death because his uncle is a police officer. He's basically saying that his uncle had his own son killed. Mm. It's almost in some ways like a murder mystery. I mean, like, you know, the cousin was killed, but like I'm at the point where we've discovered something kind of big about the cousin that doesn't have anything to do with drugs. And so it's like, okay, now what's going on? You know, I mean, it's keeping my interest. But again, you know, I'm not reading this going, oh, everything's great. (laughs) You know, I think there's going to be some kind of resolution. But in a book like this, I don't know that it can be tied up in a neat little bow. So I, I have the feeling that there will be some closure for Jay, but I think we're still going to learn some more things. It's not going to be what Jay thought exactly. Well, Amy Wegener, what have you been reading? Yeah, so actually I'm listening to, uh, and I'm in the midst of it, um, a book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And it's fantastic. He really digs into and sort of deconstructs what racism is, where it comes from, and how it operates. Part of his thesis is that there's no such thing as just being not racist. Like there's not a neutral position. Like you either choose to do things that are racist or you choose to do things that are anti-racist. So if you support policies that lead to or create racial inequity, you're being a racist and you can make a different choice and work against those things and be anti-racist or support policies that combat racial inequity. And he talks about these not being identities or, or something that's fixed. It's about what you do, you do in each moment and people change. And it's really gorgeously written. He interweaves history with a lot of autobiography stories from his own life that illustrate what he's ex- he's trying to explain or, or moments of realization that he's had along the way. And I really love the way he's able to look at larger systemic forces alongside personal choices. So I am midway through. So you said that you were listening to it on audio? Yeah, I am listening to it on audio. And does he narrate it? He does. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. It's also beautifully narrated. So I like it a lot of times when authors narrate their own books, because you really get a sense of the author. And because they wrote it, oftentimes put emphasis on things that are important to them. And I like a book that's that's narrated by the author, if they're a good narrator. But we've had a couple of guests on the show talk about Kendi's book, Stamped Mm -hmm. from the Beginning. And I don't know if you have read any of that one. I'm just wondering what the difference is between the two. Do you know, Carrie? I think Stamped is about maybe the history. Yes, I believe so. I've read the Jason Reynolds remix that Jason Reynolds did of the original Stamped from the beginning. And that was primarily historical, just talking about how racism has been a part of the United States from the very beginnings, you know, and even before just the history of, of slavery and racism. Amy, I'm curious, in the audiobook, does he give examples of things that people might do? I, I guess for myself, you know, sometimes when there are discussions about anything, really, I like to get really specific examples that I can mm-hmm. sort of wrap my head around because if it's idea and conceptual, I get lost a little bit. Does he do that in the audiobook? 
I think the main thing that he's arguing for in what, as far as where I am in my reading of it is, I think he's trying to, to unpack all of this stuff. So to actually shift our thinking away from thinking that there is this neutral position. And mm-hmm. so I think even in being able, able to understand how these forces are working on us and to be able to recognize when we are making choices that uphold the oppression of marginalized people versus working against. I mean, I think he's trying to just reframe the discussion in a way that will help us understand both the larger forces and our own choices and context. Cool. Very good. Well, Amy Smalley, what have you had going on over there? You, we haven't been texting each other this week (laughs) too much, at least about what we're reading. So, well, I'm going to talk about a book that I actually read on an e-reader, which is kind of a new thing for me because, you know, I think we've talked about before, both of us are primarily physical book readers, but over the pandemic, I have gotten so I read more Kindle books as well because I wake up in the middle of the night and have a hard time going back to sleep. And what I discovered is that if I had a book on my phone, that I could read a few chapters in the middle of the night and it would help put me back to sleep. So this is a a new habit for me, but I have gotten through several books this way just by reading a few chapters in the middle of the night. And this is one of those books and it's called Girl Waits with Gun by Amy Stewart. And it was published in 2015 and it won the Goodreads Choice Award for historical fiction. If you're on Goodreads, you know, once a year, they'll go through books that had come out you know, that particular year and and the readers vote on them. So it's sort of like the Golden Globes, I guess, for (laughs) books. Um, But this is the fictionalized story of true life events of a woman named Constance Kopp, who in 1914 became the nation's first deputy sheriff. So Constance is the oldest of the three Kopp sisters, and their mother had died, left them the family farmhouse out in rural New Jersey, and they lived a fairly solitary life. Constance was in her 30s. Norma is the middle sister, and she's a few years younger. And then there's Florette, who's the youngest, and she's a teenager. So at this time, automobiles are starting to become more common, but the cop sisters still use a horse and buggy to go into town. And the nearest town to them is Patterson, New Jersey. So one Saturday afternoon, they go into town and their buggy is hit by a man in an automobile and it damaged their buggy and it injured the sisters. And the man driving the car, his name's Henry Kaufman, and he owns one of the textile factories in town. It's a silk dyeing factory. And wealthy businessmen at that time often thought that they could get away with a lot just by the fact that they have money. And I'm not sure that things in that regard have changed very much. I was just going to say, I don't (laughs) think that's different now. I don't think it's much different now. So Constance sends Henry Kaufman several invoices for $50 to cover the cost of the repairs to the buggy. And each time he he refuses to pay. And then the harassment of the sisters begins. So Kaufman has some friends that are a little unsavory and they threaten the sisters. They throw bricks through their windows. They send anonymous notes through the mail and there are men prowling around their house. They even threaten to kidnap the youngest sister, Florette. So Constance goes to the sheriff and there begins the adventure of bringing this bully merchant to justice. The sheriff gives the three sisters pistols and teaches them how to shoot. And Constance finds that she's good at this work. She has a talent for being a detective. 
And she's a little bit larger than life. In fact, in real life, she reportedly stood close to six feet tall and did not take guff from any man. And at this time in history, the three sisters living alone without a man was seen as unusual, even bordering on unnatural and unsafe. But Constance and actually her younger sister, too, they want to live their own life. They don't want to marry or live under their brother's thumb, who's married and lives in a neighboring town. So she was quite brave in the face of danger to protect her sisters. I wouldn't classify this really as a mystery, per se, because we know who the guilty party is. It's it's more like a sort of a very subdued adventure thriller, I guess you could say. Constance is a really great character. And apparently after her stint as a deputy, she and her sisters opened a private investigations business. So throughout the book, there are snippets of newspaper articles that apparently are true articles about this case at the time. In fact, the title of the book, She Waits with Gun, comes from a headline that was in one of the Philadelphia newspapers at the time. So this was a fun book, too, to read immediately after having our first female vice president elected. It brought to mind that it's hard to believe that after more than 100 years, we are just now breaking that barrier in our government. So whenever I read a book, I always think what I recommend it to my mother, because my mother is a big reader, but she's also a sensitive reader when it comes to bad language or sexual content. So I have to be careful what I recommend to her. But this is a book that would be perfect for a reader like my mother. It's a good story with interesting characters based on real life events. And while it alludes to the grittier side of life, it doesn't go into a lot of great detail about that. This is first of two books about the cop sisters, and I'm hoping that there are going to be more. I enjoyed this one a lot, and I plan on reading the second one sometime. It sounds like a fun, it fairly, fairly light. Yes. Yeah. It's fairly okay. light. Okay. Yeah. And the, the teenage sister is quite the character and is, you know, kind of funny because she's very flamboyant and very teenage girl like. So yeah, it's a, it's a light read. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Amy Wegner her top five. We are back with Amy Wegner, and we're going to be asking her her top five. So like a lot of people, you love to travel, but haven't been able to do so in 2020. So where is the top place that you can't wait to visit when it is safer to do so and why? So this won't sound very exotic, but Omaha, Nebraska, where I have family and friends who are like family, because it's like a strange travel destination, although Omaha has many Midwestern charms, but because I miss people. (laughs) Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. Normally I would hop on a plane and go multiple times a year, but I've not been able to do that in 2020. To give something more vacation-like, I'll stick with domestic destinations. My mom and my sister drove out and stayed near Centennial, Wyoming this summer, and I just fell in love with the photos that they shared. The landscape is so beautiful and awe-inspiring and spent some really happy moments like in the Rockies and Colorado. I just find like mountains and mountain air very calming. There's something about the scale that makes you feel very centered and comfortingly insignificant. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And the the low humidity is nice too. So yeah, I've also just been thinking about the, the mountains and places out west. I'm totally with you on that. I love going to the mountains. And I have not been to Centennial, but I have been to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And mm. it's probably one of the favorite places 
that I have traveled domestically. It was just so beautiful there and yet unusual. When I say unusual, I just mean it's nothing like any place that I had lived. You know, just the way of life, the landscape, the scenery was breathtaking. Yeah. I think what what must it be like to walk out your door and see this every day? This is, yeah. So question number two, as a longtime dramaturg and literary director, you love drama. But when people talk about their personal reading, they generally read novels or nonfiction. So what is the top benefit readers can get from diving into plays? And is there a top play you'd recommend to readers who are new at reading plays? Mm. Well, so one thing that's really nice about reading plays is that they're so time bound. So you can get a full imaginative workout in one sitting, usually. It's like traveling to another world or immersing yourself in a really fascinating conversation for 90 minutes or two hours, and then you've completed the journey. And I suppose this is much like the experience of reading a novel or a memoir. But when I read a play, I can always like picture and hear the people who are talking. I feel like I actually get to know the characters. They feel like people I've met. It really enlarges my experience and understanding of other perspectives and lives. And I think theater and plays are great empathy machines. And also having that experience of reading a play and imagining in your head what it looks like, staging it in in my head, it, it's just a very active way to be living in your imagination. And and then it's fun to see a production and encounter what someone else imagined, <laughs> or sometimes find that it's exactly what you saw. So I always have trouble choosing because there are so many wonderful plays, but some of my favorite recent plays are actually published in the recent Humana Festival anthologies. I've edited with my colleague, Jenny Page White. So our Humana Festival 2018 and 2019, the Complete Plays collections were just published this year. So I'd highly recommend anything in those. And then another, just to name a particular writer that immediately came to mind, is the work of Dominique Moriso, who wrote plays including Detroit 67, Pipeline, Skeleton Crew. We actually have produced Pipeline and Skeleton Crew in recent seasons. I um, thought those names sounded familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that she's able to like bring human faces and dynamics to like really big systemic problems like the school to prison pipeline is phenomenal. She's just a just an incredible voice. Yeah. So those are those are some things um, Mm -hmm. to toss out there. You mentioned the anthology. Mm -hmm. I have now, I, gosh, I can't remember what year it is. It's still on my shelf, but this was ages ago, but it was called Beast on the Moon. Mm -hmm. And I saw it at the Humana Festival and just fell in love with that play. Mm -hmm. And so my friend, we have been friends since we were 14 and she got me the anthology, which I still have that has that play in it. So since we're recording this and going to be airing it, you know, in, in November, people are thinking about the holidays. So if you have somebody that, you know, that it sounds like it would be a good gift for people who love plays or even, you know, people who want to dip their toes into reading plays. Yeah, yeah. And the plays in any given year, there's such a variety of plays in each festival. I'm always delighted to look back at those collections and they contain many fond memories for me, but it's it's also really wonderful to be able to to share the plays in that way beyond the festival. So you mentioned that that your work in the theater has been very consuming this year with COVID, probably more than most years. And Amy Attaway of Kentucky Shakespeare recently said the same thing. 
And I think a lot of people would think that working in the theater would be less busy with having no physical live performances. So what is the top way that COVID has made working in the theater industry more time consuming? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this because I don't know that the number of hours I'm working has actually changed because um, working in theater has always been very consuming for me. But maybe it's my perception that's changed because I used to be running between rehearsals and meetings and working in the office and opening nights. And now I'm on, on Zoom meetings and working from home. But I think the main thing is that adapting and evolving and doing things in a new way takes a lot of energy and thought and conversation and pivoting and experimenting with different processes rather than being able to necessarily rely on practices you've developed and been through before, you know, and that just takes time and dialogue and rethinking and invention. So even though I'm not doing all the things I used to do, a ton of new initiatives have really taken their place. And our producing and the number of projects we're working on has never really slowed down. It's just that we're having to work around doing things in person. Yeah. So I know for myself, I've been teaching for any number of years, but this year, because we're doing online classes, I've been recording additional videos to support my students a little bit more in their writing, which I could have done and probably should have done for the last however many years. But I guess I just thought, well, I'm in person. Why would I do a video? But there's a learning curve for that, that I don't think even though you're not running around physically busy, I think intellectually and thinking about what do I need to do and what do I need to talk about? I I think there's this intellectual work that goes into it because it is new and you've never done it before. And I think that gets missed. You know, I Mm. think that people think, well, we're, we're not as busy. Well, maybe we're not as busy with our bodies, but we're probably more busy with our heads because of all the new stuff and the technology that we're having to learn how to use. Yeah, absolutely. It's really just navigating a whole new series of challenges and things to learn. So question number four, during COVID, many people have found solace in nature and getting outdoors. So what is the top thing that on your hikes and walks that you look for or that gives you peace inside? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I think just being in nature really puts things in perspective somehow. I don't know what it is about the tall trees or the grandeur of the autumn leaves, but there's something about feeling so small that allows me to feel really calm and centered. I live in a really leafy neighborhood with a lot of big old trees near Cherokee Park in Louisville, and it's just a great place to hike around. And there are also just a ton of people out walking with families and dogs in my neighborhood. So it's also just really nice to see folks out and about, albeit from a distance, enjoying the fresh air and for kind of a brief time to experience that familiar sight and feeling that life is going on. I found it very centering and just something that I try to get out and do every day as part of my routine of taking care of myself and getting some air. For me, it's wildlife. So we have a lake that's not too far from our house and I walk our dogs every day and there are ducks there. And there's one particular duck who's been there for probably five or six years and we've named him. His name is Clarence and (laughs) (laughs) he's a tough old duck. And then there's sometimes other ducks that come in and out. There's another duck, a male duck who my daughter has named Dan 
And Dan used to have a, a lady friend, but the lady friend disappeared. So now Dan and Clarence are just together as old bachelors, I think. Uh, but it's just coming every day and like watching for the ducks and seeing what they're doing. And it makes you realize in a duck's world, none of these things that we're worried about in our world even matter. There's something very soothing to me <laughs> about coming and, and looking for the ducks every day. <laughs> so. Okay. So I got to ask this because so does Clarence wear a shirt with his name on it? Like, how are you sure that it's Clarence? Well, Clarence is a different kind of duck. Oh, okay. I looked it up because he's a weird, he's a weird looking duck. He has like a red thing on his beak and on his head. And I looked it up and he is a type of duck called a Muscovy duck. And the other ducks are mallard ducks. Okay. He's very recognizable. He is an ugly duck. And he also doesn't take any guff from any dogs. Okay. So, <laughs> he will not back down. He, he's a tough old duck. So I can definitely tell the difference. Because okay. <laughs> at one point in the spring and early summer, I was thinking that I needed to make little hats for the rabbits in my neighborhood so I could differentiate them. Are they all the same rabbit and they just move around? They hop. One day I see them at this part of the neighborhood. You know, so I thought about making them different colored hats, but... That didn't actually happen. So, <laughs> all right. Question number five. So you've worked at Actors for many years and, and you've adapted this year's radio play, A Christmas Carol. So which character from the play is your top favorite and why? Oh, I'm so bad at picking favorites. I have, <laughs> I have such affection for all of them, especially now that I've written an adaptation and spent so much time with them. I mean, I will say like, as many times as I've experienced the story, I'm always surprised by how moved I am by, by Scrooge's journey and by his awakening to the hardship that surrounds him and to real generosity and joy and to a kind of activism about being part of the solution. And I think, I think it really hit me this year that he's been in isolation in his own kind of quarantine of his own making. It's quite lovely when he steps out into the street and starts interacting with the world and embracing the time he has left to be kind and to laugh. Yeah, it's just a reminder that transformation is possible and it's sort of never too late for that. So I, I don't know that I have a favorite, but since the story is his odyssey, that's what I want to highlight. Well, I had never thought about, you know, he kind of has been in like a, in a emotional quarantine, I guess. Yeah. I had never thought about that, but that's, that's true. That's really cool. I love that. Yeah. Social distancing of yeah. <laughs> a different kind. Yeah. yeah. Well, Amy, it has been so great having you as a guest and, and learning about Actors Theater's uh, A Christmas Carol, which is going to be a radio play this year. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation with both of you. To buy a ticket for The Christmas Carol, simply go to their website at actorstheater.org. After your purchase, you'll be sent an email with a link to listen to the project. Click the link to get to the streaming site. Once you're there, simply press play and you're ready to go. The play begins November 24th and you'll have until December 31st to finish listening. This play is also a pay-what-you-can event. The website offers you different levels from $15 to $100 based on how many people may stream this play with you. According to the Actors Theatre website, The Christmas Carol is a completely audio-based experience, like a podcast or a radio show on your drive to work. Gather your loved ones to share the story or just pop your headphones into your ears and press play. 
Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.